Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. I hope you are learning this and remembering because I will test you at the end. One, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward, four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the Lad. Yes, we come to Edward the sixth, the only surviving legitimate male heir of Henry the eighth. Edward was born in 1537. And he came to the throne in 1547 when he was only 10 years old. And sadly, he died six years later. That's not really a spoiler. I think everybody knows that Edward was one of these doomed boy kings. And he was born at Hampton Court Palace, which had been the home of Cardinal Wolsey. He'd built it for himself. But when he realised that the king was turning against him and the whole royal court, in a last-ditch attempt at currying favour, Wolsey gifted it to Henry. All in vain. Wolsey was still arrested and died the next year. Now, Hampton Court remains a royal palace, and I guess is the historical site most closely associated with Henry VIII. And I suppose it's the centre of Henry VIII tourism. So young Edward was named after Edward the Confessor, as all those previous Edwards had been, and his mother was Jane Seymour, the third wife of Henry VIII. And she was descended from Edward II via his son Lionel, Duke of Clarence. Now, I won't go into the whole sort of complicated succession from Edward III down, but yes, she was related 
to Henry VIII. She was a fifth cousin. And when Henry married her, he had to get all the sort of permissions from the clergy to do so, as they were reasonably closely related. I guess people were guarding against going the way of the Habsburgs, this all-powerful family in Europe who insisted on, on only marrying each other. So Edward's mother, Jane Seymour, as part of this powerful Seymour family, and her father, Sir John Seymour, made sure that Jane was made of honour to both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, and she eventually caught Henry's eye. And so on the day that he executes Anne Boleyn, he becomes engaged to Jane Seymour and marries her soon afterwards, and she has a son slightly suspiciously soon after that. And there's great rejoicing, not only in the royal household, but throughout the kingdom, because I think it must have been a great relief to the people to think, at last, we've got a male heir, the succession is safe, we're not going to be plunged back into more bloody civil wars as people are fighting over who's going to take the throne. And Henry was so pleased that he, he showed the boy off at a window in the palace, very much like the royals today will, will bring a newborn child out onto the balcony at Buckingham Palace, or, or like Michael Jackson did, dangling his son out of a window in a hotel. But as I say, there does seem to be genuine joy in the country that there was a male heir to the throne. And Edward was baptised by Thomas Cranmer, the Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. There was actually a lockdown at the time, as there was plague in London. Um, but as usual, those in charge felt that they could break the rules. And about 400 people processed from the bedchamber to the chapel and back again. And it's interesting to see some of the key players who were in that procession. There's Thomas Cranmer himself. There is the third Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard, who was uncle to both Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, a later queen. There was also Princess Mary, Edward's big sister, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who is some 20 years older than him. There are also the two powerful Seymour brothers, Edward Seymour and Thomas Seymour the Queen's brothers. And all of these people are going to play a big part in the rest of Edward's reign. Now, Edward wasn't made Prince of Wales. It wasn't automatic that all firstborn male heirs to the throne were made Prince of Wales. He was instead made the Duke of Cornwall, which was, of course, King Charles III's title alongside Prince of Wales. He was also Duke of Cornwall which people will know from eating his famous duchy biscuits. So all is looking good. Happiness throughout the land. Henry absolutely overjoyed. But then within about two weeks, Jane falls ill. It was probably not an infection, as historians used to think. It was probably a haemorrhage, most likely caused by the placenta being stuck in the womb, which the royal physicians, these pompous male doctors, hadn't spotted, because they had banned midwives from the birth. This is still something that causes huge controversy today and that midwives get incredibly pissed off about. The fact that these 
superior and supercilious male surgeons think they know everything about childbirth and that it should be this kind of medical procedure, whereas midwives are doing it day in and day out and know so much more about it and are so much better able to monitor the the health and well-being of the mother as well as the child. So it wasn't spotted that she had not given birth to the placenta. There's massive hemorrhaging and she died. Henry is pretty distraught. Jane Seymour is definitely his favourite, particularly as she's given him a male heir. And he is now in the position of having to look for another wife, eventually settles on Anne of Cleves. Meanwhile, young Edward, for the first six years of his life, is brought up among the women. And he says this himself in the chronicle that he kept. He sort of kept this journal, this diary. It's quite impersonal. There's nothing about his thoughts or his feelings. It's just a record of events, but a very useful one. So yes, he lived in a very female household and and Henry, his father, was obsessive about the household being kept clean and healthy and Edward being properly looked after and being given a proper education. And he described him as being his most precious jewel, which he was, you know, as he saw it, the future of the English crown and of the political, social and religious changes that Henry had put into effect rested on this small boy. Um, And among the household, he insisted that there were four female rockers. Now, this is not Joan Jett and the runaways. These are women who I guess can rock the cradle round the clock. There is, of course, a physician, Dr George Owen, who ironically not only looked after Edward when he was a toddler, but he was there at his deathbed in 1553. There was a dean of the chapel, Dr Richard Cox, who was also headmaster of Eton and a canon of Westminster. And he was pretty much the prince's main tutor. And to keep the prince happy and amused, not a wind-up mobile that played musical chimes, but a full-on group of musicians and a company of players. Now, Edward... Despite how he's depicted in some of the films and TV shows, was a healthy, happy and bright child. He wasn't this sort of pale and sickly child, which I guess people probably make him out as um, in dramatisations, as a form of foreshadowing of telling us what's going to happen. So we can see that everyone's joy in having this male heir is not going to go well. But yes, on the whole, he was a robust And as I say, an extremely bright child. But when he was four years old, he did contract malaria. And Henry called in doctors from all around Europe and also sent his own personal physician, Dr. William Butts, to attend to young Edward. And (laughs) Dr. Butts famously was kind of fussing around Edward and kept asking him if he felt any disposition to vomit. To which Edward replied, go away, fool. So, yes, he was quite a robust, self-assured and strong-willed child, stubborn and very much his own person. He took after his father in very many ways. So he was studying hard, but he was also reading, dancing, playing with toys, playing games, card games, whatever, having fun. He also hung out with his two half-sisters, 
Mary and Elizabeth. When he was younger, he seems to have preferred Mary, but this all changed when he was old enough to sort of take charge and really push for Protestantism to be accepted. And, and Mary was a devout Catholic from first to last. Now, there are four surviving notebooks from Edward's younger days. He's kind of school notebooks, and they are a fairly unique record of what a, a royal education was, but also really of a general 16th century humanist education. Uh, Edward learnt French. He also learnt Latin and Greek. And it's interesting learning Greek. We looked a little bit at the Renaissance, this idea of classical knowledge being rediscovered, relearned and retaught. And Greek particularly is a pre-Christian language. So this idea that you could only read Christian texts has fallen away. Obviously, he also did Bible studies, but alongside this, he read the speeches of Cicero. He read classical historians like Herodotus and Thucydides, uh, Plutarch, Pliny the Younger. He read works by Erasmus and Aristotle. So it's a very broad education. We saw in the last episode how his father, Henry, was really interested in, in maps and astronomy and the idea of exploring the world. And it was Henry's father, Henry VII, who had commissioned Sebastian Cabot's early voyages across the Atlantic, where he discovered North America. And I put discovered in heavy inverted commas. It was Cabot who landed on and named this newfound land from where he brought back some Inuit, Eskimos, as they were known at the time, who eventually were assimilated into the royal household. And on the back of all this, Henry VIII became fascinated by this idea of discovery, of maps and globes, of, of I suppose, kind of owning the world. And he passed that interest on to his son, Edward. And it seems that possibly Dr John Dee, who was famous from Queen Elizabeth's court as a sort of chief of spies and sort of chief magician in some ways, it seems that he possibly taught Edward the mathematics of oceanic navigation. Which is actually quite complicated because the world is a globe and you can't travel in straight lines across the sea. Which, you know, there was... Used to be this idea when I was a kid that, you know, people in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat and that Christopher Columbus was the first person to realise it wasn't. This was nonsense. People have realised the Earth is a globe for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, it's obvious to the naked eye, which is why it's fascinating that we have this current explosion of, of flat earthers who just cannot accept the facts. But Edward was also interested in and was taught the arts. He was taught to play a keyboard, a virginal, which is a sort of precursor of the piano, which works by plucking strings rather than hammering them. He had choirs singing for him. He learnt to sing in a choir himself. He played the lute. Uh, he was given two viols, which is a sort of precursor of a violin. Nobody knows if he actually learnt to play them, but oh God, he wouldn't have had time, all this other stuff he was doing. And as I say, a certain amount of this is recorded in his chronicles. And when he was six years old, in 1543, he was betrothed to Mary, Queen of Scots. 
in an attempt by Henry VIII to form a close alliance with Scotland and stop these kind of cross-border wars that, that has actually not been beneficial for either the Scots or the English. But eventually the Scots themselves um, prevented this marriage uh, and said it was never going to happen because there's this idea, and we've seen it happen in Europe, that if a male king marries a female queen, he becomes the guy in charge. So that would have made Edward ultimately king of Scotland. So the Scots weren't having anything of that. And this meant that wars with Scotland and France continued, which young Edward seems to have been quite affected by. It was also in 1543 that Henry married Catherine Parr, his last wife, and Edward moved to her household where he was brought up and very well cared for. For the first time in his life he had a loving mother figure to look after him and he spent a happy time in Catherine Parr's household with his sisters. But four years later his father Henry died. Edward, only ten years old, now automatically became King of England. There was a big five-hour procession through the city. But the thing of it that Edward seemed to most enjoy was an Italian acrobat and tightrope walker who seems to have attached some kind of rope to St Paul's Cathedral, which angled down towards the ground, and he slid down it and halfway down jumped off to land on this huge feather bed, very much as stuntmen do today when they're doing high falls. Uh, and that seems to be the thing that really stuck in his mind from the whole coronation process, as it would do when you're just a 10-year-old boy. Now, the interesting thing about the actual coronation, again presided over by Thomas Cranmer, is that parts of the ceremony were changed. It had been pretty much the same for a very long time. And it was the parts, really, that related to the king's power, the king's religious power, his relationship with Rome and his relationship with the English clergy. This sort of cemented the idea of Edward as the head of the Church of England and there being no authority above and beyond him. There was also a lot of anti-papal invective in Cranmer's speech and you could say that this was the proper start of the English Protestant war against the Antichrist, the Pope, the whore of Babylon. There is also mention in the coronation ceremony of the empire of Great Britain. Now, this is an idea that has sprung up in Henry VIII's reign. This idea that England is not just England, that it is an empire. There is Ireland. There are obviously plans, if possible, to annex Scotland. Wales is pretty much under English rule and Henry still had designs on France. Plus, he was starting to look at the Americas. He's seen what the Spanish had achieved in South America, bringing back these unimaginable amounts of gold, making the Spanish king a hundred times wealthier than Henry. So this is in some ways the birth of the concept of the British Empire. But as I say, Edward was only 10 years old. Um, he was not old enough to rule in his own right. 
and a ruling council was put together. Henry had left some instructions for this, uh, but they weren't followed to the letter. So a royal council is appointed, and at the head of it is Edward Seymour, the older of Jane Seymour's two brothers. He is also the Duke of Somerset. And he essentially becomes regent, protector of the realm. He is, to all intents and purposes, the king at this point. Ruling with this council and with the consent of Edward, but very much the man in charge. He seems to have been quite a stern, unbending figure, quite conservative, not wholly committed to the idea necessarily of Protestantism. Uh, his younger brother, Thomas, was a different kettle of fish. He seems to have been a bit of a rogue, a bit of a lad, and he seems to have been incredibly jealous of his older brother, who didn't really give him the power that Thomas thought he should have. He was part of this council, but hadn't been given the, the money and the status he felt was owing to him. And so he started going behind his big brother's back and trying to forge a bond with the young King Edward. He would sneak into his private apartments at night and slip him notes and money, sort of pocket money. Thomas put it about that Edward was really short of money and that his big brother, Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, was withholding funds for him and making the king a beggar. Um, so, so Thomas is trying to bribe his way into Edward's affections so that Edward had money that he could tip his musicians, for instance, and things like that, and, and members of his household staff so that he could enjoy himself. And Thomas would leave notes hidden for King Edward to find and pick up, and they would exchange messages in this way. And Thomas was very much trying to curry favour with Edward, and he was... He was probably also trying to undermine his big brother's power, whether this is as far as a kind of conspiracy to get rid of him. Who knows? But Edward Seymour was getting pretty pissed off with young Thomas. And one night when Thomas is visiting Edward's bedchamber, he finds that the doors are bolted to him and that Edward's dog is barking furiously at him. And Thomas Seymour, in a terrible rage, shoots the dog dead, which alerts the whole royal household and all the guards. And he is kind of uh, taken into custody and they find some of these hidden notes. And Edward Seymour says, well, this is a plot. I mean, the notes don't say anything important. There's nothing political in them. But Edward Seymour pumps this up and frames it as a treasonous conspiracy. And he has his brother beheaded. So Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, running the country, he's also in charge of the army. He seems to have been quite a good general, but like many generals, he often seemed to be a little bit unsure of what to do. Once you've won the battle, how do you maintain that authority? Where do you go from there? He tried to set up these garrisons in Scotland after a successful military campaign to kind of keep the lid on the Scottish. But this was incredibly expensive. This is at a time where there, there's no actual standing army in the country. So there is no regular money put aside for military spending. It has to be raised in taxes. So he's having to try and raise all this money to pay for these garrisons. He is debasing the English coin 
that means you know he's adding base metals to the silver that you should have in say you know a sixpence and he put so much of these base metals in i guess sort of copper brass whatever somebody said the coins were actually blushing as they were turning a little bit pink so there are huge problems economically for england and the english and seymour's activities are not helping at all he's he's on the verge of bankrupting the king and it's round about this time when there is a lot of unhappiness fermenting in the land that archbishop cranmer produces his first book of common prayer so this is a prayer book in english now this is seen as this this great literary work this beautiful collection of prayers in great english language but at the time this was really controversial and most people really hated the idea they were being quite used to having services in latin and they would hear readings which they probably wouldn't understand but then the the priest would give his sermon where he would tell the stories in english but the idea of saying your prayers in latin was alien to most people and the interesting thing is that if we look at say cornwall they were still largely speaking cornish the last thing they wanted was an english language prayer book to be forced on them and in 1549 the people of devon and cornwall rose up against the king but the the unrest and discontent was not confined to the west of england there was another rebellion in the east led by a man called robert ket now the cornish uprising tends to be called the prayer book rebellion but robert ket's rebellion was slightly different there was an anti-protestant angle to it but the main source of discontent was with the enclosures that were happening this was where wealthy landlords were expanding their land taking over smaller farms amalgamating them into these large farms pulling out hedges to make the fields easier to manage and taking over common land which had traditionally been used by villagers to keep animals on to grow crops on to feed themselves and these are being enclosed by the landlords fenced off largely for keeping sheep which were obviously key to the enormously profitable wool trade and robert ket and these so-called rebels believed that they had right on their side which they did and they also believed that they would have the support of people like edward seymour because what the landlords were doing was quite clearly illegal and this kind of rebellious spirit spread all round the country so 1549 was probably the most dangerous part of edward's reign this this really could have gone very badly for him if the whole of the country had had risen up particularly as somerset has all these soldiers committed to these garrisons in scotland and he doesn't have any money and at this point the french as so often happens they think oh look the english are having problems let's declare war on them so he's now having to put troops into burgundy he pulls his troops out of scotland and he goes up against these rebels so seymour sends an army to suppress the revolt in the west led by a man called john russell and he managed to defeat them and the leaders of the rebellion were executed but seymour's in a tricky position if these revolts and rebellions do spread throughout the land he doesn't really have the money and the resources or the men to deal with it 
and he has to start negotiating with rebels, playing for time and making sympathetic-seeming proclamations, claiming to see the truth in the widespread complaints about enclosures, which doesn't go down well at court. But what else can Seymour do? He, I mean, he does manage to put together an army and he sends it under the leadership of John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick, who we'll come on to later. The rebels in the east are defeated and Robert Kett is executed. Seymour might think that his troubles are over, but other forces in Parliament are already moving against him. They don't like him being in power. They think he's made pretty bad decisions, pretty costly mistakes. They don't like the idea that he's been negotiating with these lefties. <laughs> and there is something of a coup in Parliament, in this ruling council. If you remember, one of the first things that Henry VIII did on taking the throne was to execute his father, Henry VII's two chief tax collectors. And one of them was this man, Edmund Dudley. And his son was the John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, who defeated Robert Kett. And amazingly, John Dudley doesn't seem to have been put off from following a political career by his father's execution, and he sort of steadily worked his way to the heart of the royal court. And he is key in this sort of new power faction to get rid of Edward Seymour and the Conservatives as they are seen. So Dudley starts out as a Warwick, and confusingly, he also becomes a Northumberland when he sort of makes himself Duke of Northumberland in 1551. But I'll just call him Dudley. And he gains support amongst the powers that be to have Somerset arrested on sort of trumped-up charges of treason. He's put in the tower. Just to jump forward later on, he is let out. But in the end, Dudley thinks, no, let's get rid of him altogether. And he is later executed. So, Jane Seymour's two brothers, Edward executed his own younger brother, Thomas, and Edward himself was then executed. I mean, you know, look at Dudley. He's seen his father executed by Henry, but he still thinks, you know what, I'm going to go into politics. That's the life for me. That'll be a lot of fun. I'll be able to gain fame and influence. The Seymours, the same. They're all kind of plotting against each other, wiping each other out. I mean, it was... It must have been one of the most dangerous professions in the country, being a politician this time. And Henry VIII's court was so incredibly violent and bloody in the number of people that he executed. And this is still going on in Edward's reign, and it continues into Mary's reign and into Elizabeth's reign. The amount of blood shed by the Tudors is, is just extraordinary. But still, people keep coming forward, trying to take power, trying to take control. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people wish that would happen today, that politicians were executing each other, but uh, we won't get into that. Now, it seems that one of the reasons that Dudley was able to so quickly manoeuvre himself into this position of authority and power and gained the backing of the other lords to get rid of Seymour was that he took Edward seriously. Now, We've seen before with a lot of the sort of boy kings that they are very much at the mercy of their advisers. But Edward seems to have been very, very 
headstrong. He had strong ideas. You know, particularly he wanted to, I think he wanted to cement what his father had put in place. He wanted to push forward with the reform of the church and the reform of the country. And Dudley kind of stood as a reformist. And as I say, Edward Seymour sort of stood as a as a conservative. And Edward wanted things done. And, and so Dudley said, OK, I will work with you. I won't tell you what to do. We'll be a partnership. And that gave him great power and strength. So we've had all these eruptions at court, a big power play from Dudley. Everything's being rearranged. There's new people in charge. Dudley, Warwick, Northumberland, whatever you want to call him, in power at the top, but not trying to claim that he was above Edward. And Edward does have these strong ideas and he does push through the reform. He takes things a lot further than his father Henry had done and indeed than Henry had wanted to do. And this brings Edward into conflict with his oldest sister, Mary, staunch Catholic. And over the years with Mary and Elizabeth, one minute they're legitimate, still in the line of succession. The next moment they're scratched off the list and then they're back in favour and it keeps chopping and changing. But Edward very much said, no, they are not going to be next in line after me. And things could have gone well. It looks like Edward could have been quite a tough, decisive, intelligent and powerful king. He could have held the country together. He would have stopped this cycle of violence. But unfortunately, he gets a cold, which he can't seem to shift. It moves to his lungs. He gets some kind of lung infection. And it soon becomes quite clear that he is dying. So he gets together with his ministers, particularly with Dudley, and he puts together uh, this document called the Device for the Succession, where he sets down who is going to take the throne after him. And it's not Mary. It's not Elizabeth. He chooses this figure of Lady Jane Grey, the great-granddaughter of Henry VII, descended from one of Henry VIII's sisters, Mary. Dudley is all for this. Lady Jane Grey is his chief candidate. And there has been argument of whether Dudley was manipulating Edward or whether this was Edward's decision. But it is set in stone that Lady Jane Grey will be the heir to the throne. We'll look in the next episode at just how badly that goes. Because poor Jane Grey, this was not her idea. She had a marriage forced on her. And then the idea that she would become queen was forced on her. The marriage was to John Dudley's son, Guildford. Guildford Dudley. Not her choice. This is something that's been cooked up between her father, Henry Grey, and Lord Dudley himself, the Duke of Northumberland. And she certainly hadn't been pushing to get to the throne past the much more legitimate candidates of Mary and Elizabeth. But that's what happened after Edward died. And as soon as this all happens, Mary gets out of London as quickly as she can. Then she goes to Norfolk, where she has quite a powerful support base and extensive estates. Now, remember, this was where Robert Kett's rebellion against the king had started and had been put down by Dudley. 
and she holds up in a castle there, and back in London, Edward is failing fast. So this disease has spread to Edward's lungs. Some people have said that this might possibly have been tuberculosis. It doesn't look like it. There was a post-mortem done on him. It was a disease of the lungs of some sort. He had these two huge ulcers and his lungs were putrefied. So unfortunately, Edward dies coughing up black blood. So that is a sad end of Edward VI and how different things might have been. He was buried in an unmarked grave at Westminster Abbey in 1553, with Thomas Cranmer once again presiding. Fittingly, the funeral procession was led by a great company of children. And in our next episode, we'll see what happens when another young person comes to the throne, the unfortunate 17-year-old Lady Jane Grey. And after the break... We'll be hearing from my expert for this week, Stephen Olford. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Now, my guest on this episode is the historian and academic Stephen Alford, who is Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Leeds and has written extensively about this era, including The Watchers, A Secret History of the Reign of Elizabeth I and London's Triumph, Merchant Adventurers and the Tudor City. His book on Robert Cecil, who served both Queen Elizabeth and King James and uncovered the gunpowder plot, is out in July 2024. And Stephen also wrote the book on Edward VI for the Penguin Monarchs series. So the perfect person to have on to talk about Edward. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So just before we get on to Edward, tell us a little bit about your book, London's Triumph. Well, it was a book in in part about Tudor London uh, and how it changed, really into the 17th century. Small, marginal sort of city or moderately sized um, city really on the edges of Europe, kind of satellite of big financial powers like Antwerp. Mm. And a city that grew and grew and grew in terms of its sort of financial power and its population pretty much... Um, sort of tripled over over a century. Um, so so is that really, sort of through the Tudor period? Yeah, it is really, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Over the course of the 16th century, one of the big themes of the book really was the relationship between that and that growth um, and really the way that 
Elizabethan sort of broke out beyond Europe, mainly in their sort mm. of trade, but also kind of travel and exploration um, and, and how their kind of worldview just changed massively, really, over the course of decades. You know, they, they actually kind of discovered the world. You know, they bumped into Russia yeah. by accident. They discovered <laughs> the East Indies. They'd had only the vaguest, vaguest clue before. Yeah. But they're actually kind of there. So their minds are expanding as much as kind of London's expanding and its uh, so they, so they, financiers and its merchants and so on. They, they went beyond their obsession with France. Yes. Yeah, and the Low Countries. A lot of Tudor trade, Low Countries. We, we talked about that with um, John Guy and Julia Fox when we were talking about Henry, about how important that trade with Antwerp was and how closely we were kind of knitted in with what was going on in that part of of Europe. Absolutely. It was uh, London merchants or sort of English merchants, bread and butter, really. And, and it's the wool trade, the great experts of getting cloth over to Antwerp and, and selling it at the, um, the Antwerp marts. Um, and Antwerp was the big financial power. It's where the big financiers of Germany, like the Fugger and the Velser, had their offices and where Henry VIII and um, Ed Edward VI got their loans from. Okay, all right. So although Henry wasn't generating huge amounts of income at home, he was still able to secure loans in Antwerp to pay for his wars. And, you know, that, that was a debt which was eye-watering and which was one of the legacies actually the really difficult legacy for the reign of edward the sixth where edward's government were really struggling to repay those debts is it uh, is it one of those debts that we're still paying off today yeah it's, <laughs> it's probably hidden in treasury accounts somewhere oh. and is this the sort of era when we start getting the likes of well the equivalent of economists at court advising what's going on yeah, there are some specialists sort of on the edges. So financial diplomacy becomes a specialised job. For merchant financier diplomats like Thomas Gresham, yeah, so important in uh, acting as the great kind of mediator and negotiator with um, Henry VIII's and Edward's and Elizabeth's loans with the, uh, the various sort of European banking houses. And there's a Guy later in Elizabeth's reign, uh, an Anglo-Italian called Sir Horatio Pallavicino, um, <laughs> who takes a similar sort of role. You know, I mean, they're businessmen, really. They're the billionaires of the 16th century, but they do a job of work for the government as well. So it's mm. kind of international financial diplomacy and, and specialism, really. I mean, the knowledge of economy and econometrics, um, you know, sort of generally broadly within the government, probably pretty pretty limited, as far as I understand it. Um, <laughs> but people like Gresham and Pallavicino and others, you know, really actually knew how loans worked and how the, the Antwerp bourse worked and, you know, the whole kind of technical minutiae of, of financial diplomacy. So it's a big thing, yeah. <laughs> but let's get back to chopping people's heads off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the fun, fun part of history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've written the book on Edward VI for the Penguin Monarchs series. Um were you pleased to get Edward VI rather than say, I don't know, it's not your part of history, Queen Victoria, where, you know, the book would have been about a thousand pages long. Edward, what is it, about four or five pages? Well, <laughs> no, no, don't think this is giving away any state secrets, but the, um, the, the brief for that series was basically, you know, kind of like 25,000 words a, a book when you're used to writing. No, no, no. I books, mean, a um, hundred old, you know, 
nudging up to 200,000 words, you know, the great yeah. the doorstops. So, yeah, I mean, the brief was 25,000 words. You think, well, you know, it's Edward. He's, he's a boy. It's a short reign. <laughs> um, you know, it's over in the blink of an eye. You know, that's easy. Well, in fact, it, it, it was quite a job of work to squeeze Edward and the reign into even 25,000 words. I was pleased. I mean, you know, I, I, I might have hoped for, you know, a biggie like Elizabeth I <laughs> I mean, one of the things I've been trying to do in this series is look at a through line for each monarch, a, a, a way of telling their stories. What was your approach to Edward? Well, I wanted to do a couple of things. I, I, I think I wanted to make sense of little Edward himself as, as far as we can, and you know, and as far as we can get into anyone else's head or worldview. I really wanted to try to make sense of him on his own terms, which was its own challenge. I mean, you know, how do you make sense of someone who dies at 15 years and eight months mm. becomes king as a boy at the age of nine. So there was that challenge. But then I think also in my mind was how can I show that Edward's reign fits into the bigger pattern of what's going on in the mm. 16th century? Was it important or could we just blink and miss it and not miss very much? And actually, I think it's really important. And I think little Edward himself is actually really interesting. Yeah. But even though he died so young and reigned for such a short time, he does seem to have had a lot of principles that he wanted to push through. And he very much wanted to consolidate what his father, Henry VIII, had started with the Reformation. Why do you think he was so determined to kind of push that through against what must have been a lot of public pushback? I mean, was it a certain... Do you think it was like that was, that was daddy's thing and I want to you know, continue his legacy? Yeah, I think there's a big element of that. I think there's that opportunity with Henry VIII dead in 1547 of doing something decisive with the break from Rome. Henry VIII, it's a bit of a cliche, but I, I suppose there's a kind of Brexit element to the break <laughs> with Rome where you, you do it because it seems like a good idea at the time, but nobody's actually really thought it through or understood the implications of mm. the Henry. It probably meant something entirely different to lots of people around him. So there's an opportunity in Edward's reign, I think, to do something decisive with the break from Rome, which was to take it, as you say, you know, in a Protestant direction, stripping the altars, smashing stained glass, getting mm. rid of religious imagery, new book of common prayer, getting rid of um, popish idolatry, as they, they put it in the in the 16th century. In part, it's Edward. And this is one of the, I think, the tricky and subtle things about little Edward is, well, he's a boy. Yes. I mean, I suppose the question is always, how much of this is his idea? Is he doing it all himself? He kind of isn't, no, because, you know, everybody recognises that he can't rule for himself. So he's got yeah. ministers and advisors and tutors and courtiers. And they are absolutely paid up evangelical. Interesting thing is that they're there because Henry VIII had put them there. These are the people who educated his son from a very early age. And suddenly they're out of the closet in 1547. They are evangelicals, they're Protestants. They want to change the world, change the church, change society. So all, uh, all of the Regency Council, I mean, were they all committed Protestants? Pretty much. Right. I mean, certainly the leading members were. Uh, there were some who were more moderate. But any opponents of 
evangelical change are really kind of pushed to the outside. This is one of the interesting, tricky things about 1547. Henry VIII, you know, has this big plan for a big sort of regency council, big kind of corporate model governing the kingdom. And basically, that's either kind of sidestepped or slightly subverted. And the big beast who pushes his way to the front with a lot of sharp elbows <laughs> uh, and politicking is Henry VIII's brother-in-law and Edward's maternal uncle, um, Edward Seymour. It looked almost like he was kind of a, a quasi-monarch that he sort of felt right, I mean, even though it was his council, but it, it does seem to be he was leading very much. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think there's an old kind of historical debate here about, well, you know, it's it, it, this is the classic case of a, of a minor... Uh, monarch, you know, a young king whose reign is kind of subverted by, you know, the sort of big mm. powerful men in the in the background. Perhaps there's an element of truth. They're certainly steering in a certain direction. And Edward's nine at the beginning of his reign. Yeah. At the same time, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Tudor monarchy isn't built for, you know, big corporate models. It's it's built for autocratic personal monarch. But Edward Seymour does seem to have been a bit crap. <laughs> That's a nicely, crisply, um, well, analytical I, I way. I can say this. I'm not a historian. I can just... Well, he's 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 a bit of a question mark. He's one of those individuals, I think, in history who has, how can I put it delicately, as delicate as, as, as you put it, Charlie, a kind of mixed skill set as a politicker and certainly as a general, as a military leader. Um, he, he, he was pretty... Formidable, And he had some big backers and some very capable politicians, people like William Paget, who'd been a very big cheese in Henry VIII, right. was, uh, was Henry's secretary. So, you know, Paget and others are kind of, you know, a bit behind him. So he's got some, you know, he's got some serious backers. In terms of his lightness of touch in building political relationships, in sort of keeping the show on the road, in being responsive to situations of judging complexity at home and abroad, the kind of sense of politics, you know, political skills. Yeah, he's a bit hopeless, really. The wheels have kind of fallen off his protectorate. He is appointed formally protector of the king's realms and dominions and uh, the protector of, of the king's person. But the wheels fall off and that there is a very sticky year in 1549 with widespread rebellion and economic collapse. And, and, and these rebellions, I suppose, similar to the um, pilgrimage of grace. How much of that is is a kind of economic rebellion and how much of it is a religious pushback against the changes? Well, it's both kind of connected Really, this is to generalise, and you know historians hate to generalise. But I have to. I've got a lot to fit in. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> okay, generalise, David. <laughs> um, in, in the, the old view used to be that there was a portion of that rebellion uh, down in the West Country, down in, in Cornwall mainly, um, which, which was all about religion, you know, still yeah. listening to the Book of Common Prayer. And then in East Anglia, people really bothered about basically kind of collapsing economy and, you know, mm. poverty and uh, and dislocation. In fact, I mean, really, it turns out that there's a rebellion pretty much across the whole of England, you know, right. from the north, the Midlands and the south, you know, pretty much everywhere. And it's a whole conflation of things. I compare it in some ways to, you know, this moment in our history where basically everything kind of seems to be falling. To yeah. Me. And, you know, people are pretty fed up. 
in a sense, that's what's going on. I think it's it's a meeting, but there's a lot of resistance to you know the radical Protestant takeover, really, of of the church. And is this basically just put down by Edward Seymour militarily, as it were? Yeah. How, is it, how has it stopped? Basically, they're sending professional troops or as as close to professional yeah. troops as Tudor England had, you know, against peasants with sickles and scythes and bill hooks, and and they really don't stand much of a chance. But then also Seymour enters into negotiation with some of the rebel leaders. And in fact, that's one of the things that makes his colleagues begin to doubt his political competence, that he is negotiating with the rebels. Yeah, yeah, there seems to be this idea that the rebels kind of felt he was on their side and he, yeah. he agreed with their grievances. Yeah, enclosing landlords and local communities who'd had access to common land, time out of mind, all the way back, you know, generations and generations of finding themselves really sort of pushed out by um, local landowners who are just taking land and mm. fencing it off for their own purposes. And so know. Edward Seymour says, yeah, that they shouldn't be behaving like this. And Exactly. Yeah, the yeah, other yeah. courtiers accuse him of being too woke. Yes, well... <laughs> <laughs> yes, but precisely, you know, and the advice he gets from people like William Badgett to this point mm. of supported him are, you don't be soft on rebels. You go in and you, you bash them and you execute them and you're tough. And, you know, so there's an element of that, but there's an element of negotiation that um, yeah. makes Seymour, Somerset's uh, colleagues begin to question his political judgment. That's one of the big wobbles, really. Does that lead yeah. directly to his, his downfall and yeah. execution? He takes Edward off to, to Windsor Castle. And, you know, most of the, the council are kind of in London. Uh, and there are a couple of <laughs> relatively sane heads who are with Somerset at Windsor with the king. And there's a standoff, you know, and both sides are accusing each other of treason. But in the end, Somerset's persuaded to stand down and release the king, then he's taken into custody. I mean, it's not like his complete end. You know, he does spend a bit of time in the Tower of London, but then he's released, he's rehabilitated for a time. But then he's too much of a threat to the next powerful man, the Earl of Warwick, the Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley. And Dudley begins to get nervous about Somerset's return. And Somerset's accused of organising rebellion against England, and you take over the government. That's the point at which he's executed. So it's a complicated one, but it's, you know, the political machinations are pretty brutal, actually, in in Edward's reign. And obviously they know that once Edward is old enough, he is going to take proper charge. I mean, do you think that Edward Seymour and then John Dudley were kind of thinking if they can get powerful enough before that happens, that they might be able to keep hold of power or did they always know that their time was limited? Well, I think Edward was certainly growing up. He was beginning, I think, to achieve some kind of political consciousness, awareness of his own power and authority by about the age of of 14. I mean, you see that in his chronicle. I think that the subtlety of John Dudley is kind of in contrast to the unsubtlety uh, a protector Somerset, because I think John Dudley recognised, of course, that the king was growing. Mm. And everyone expected Edward to attain his majority and to rule for himself. So I think Dudley's great skill was to kind of embed himself, really the king's chief advisor, with his supporters 
in a helpful way, which supported and steered the king, rather than sort of setting himself up as protector Somerset had done, as kind of quasi-monarch who ruled the show. So Dudley's operation is still there, and he's still immensely powerful, and he's still right at the kind of core of things. But he does it in a much more subtle sort of way, which takes into account the fact that Edward is, is definitely kind of growing up. Nobody believes that Edward is just going to kind of fall off the perch because he's... There used to be this idea that he was a, a sickly child and he was yeah. sort of doomed from the start, but that seems to be completely false. Oh, completely. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he has, as everybody did in the 16th century, you know, there are, there are, there are moments of kind of worry. He, he, mm episode of smallpox which you seem to get through although the interesting thing is that um you know there's kind of medical theory that that um attack of smallpox in 1551 weakened his immune system right led long term to the the disease of the lungs whichever disease it was pretty grim um eventually killed it um in in 1553 but on the face of it you know when when you look at um you know his journal um, and, you know, the record of his own life and, you know, the record of his court. You know, he's pretty physical, really. You know, the, there are hints of the um, of the young Henry VIII, very much like his father, mm. actually. And I think probably quite like his father in temperament as well. I mean, highly, highly educated, you know, sort of prepared. I often tell students that, you know, the surprising, perhaps kind of arresting thing about Edward VI is that he's the only one of the Tudor monarchs who was ever expected from birth to rule. He sees the throne as a usurper. Henry VIII was, you know, second son of the, the spare. Yeah. Mary, well, she was way at the edges of Tudor succession planning. And Elizabeth, off the scale in terms of the odds of Elizabeth ever ruling. But people really believed that Edward was going to rule. And he was educated mm. for rule. Pretty physical. You know, there's a lot of physical stuff going on. You know, he, he loved war games, that sort of thing, and put on at court. That's where he gets really excited. He, he, writes down all these wonderful descriptions and he gets really carried away. He loves military tech, bit of a boy's boy. Yes, a proper old-fashioned boy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this idea that he's some weak and yeah. sickly delicate flower just about hanging on to life is, is completely, completely wrong. And then he goes and gets ill. You really feel for him because it, it looks awful, awful yeah. ill, final illness. But it's fairly quick. Right. Really, the kind of political establishment don't have that long to try and sort things out because everything kind of hangs on Edward. Um, uh, you know, his successor by law, by Henry VIII's last will and testament, and by statute was his half-sister Mary, who's very obviously a Catholic, you know, who refused to accept Edward's church. So, you know, the, the rush is on to try and kind of sort something out to avert total disaster, really. But Edward did have time to draw up this device for the succession. My device, which I always think, you know, note the pronoun, my device for the succession, um, which is basically to kind of, you know, exclude um, his half-sisters, Mary, uh, and even, perhaps surprisingly, Elizabeth, um, in favour and how, of and, and how much Ray. do you think that was him and how much was the the men around him? Well, again, big question marks. My own sort of view, some historians might agree, some would disagree, is that it's primarily driven by Edward hmm. himself. Um, I think he felt strongly and passionately about who his successor um, should be. 
And for Edward, it wasn't just, I think, about religion. It was actually about legitimacy as well, which, of course, is a big theme for the 16th mm. century, for the Tudors generally, you know, legitimate rule. And as much as he's sort of got on with his sister Mary, and they, they, they agreed to disagree. Um, but he got on pretty well with his half-sister Elizabeth. But for Edward, I think, you know, both both were illegitimate, both were, were bastards, because the only marriage that mattered uh, was to Jane Seymour. Yeah. So I think it's Edward who makes the running, but it's not a surprise that there are ministers like Northumberland, John Dudley, and others who have a vested interest, really, in putting a, a Protestant successor in, in power. Looking back from now, you think, well, it was doomed from the start, but yeah. was it doomed from the start? I don't think it was. I mean, it was it, it, in 1553, it was going to be a very delicately balanced thing. As I said, I, I think they had to act quickly. It sort of came out of nowhere. So that, that there wasn't a huge amount of time to plan. On the side of John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, and his supporters was the fact that, you know, of course, they held London. That made a big difference. Mm. They had armaments in the Tower of London. They thought they had on their side, you know, most of the political elite and those who mattered. Mary, Princess Mary, stuck out in Norfolk, sort of isolated. And there was a kind of political calculation that said, look, you know, the, the, the odds are kind of stopped, stacked in favour of, of Northumberland. It, it just didn't work out like that. And I think mm. Mary's march south and her gathering of supporters and forces actually really surprised Northumberland. I think this is one of the few points in his career in which actually he's just kind of politically wrong-footed. He makes a very, very bad misjudgment. And when you reconstruct as much as you can what was going on in the tower in those days of the reign of Jane the Queen, when they realise that basically the wheels are coming off and the whole thing's falling to pieces, is really interesting because they're basically, you know, all ministers and courtiers around Northumberland, they're trying to abandon ship as quickly as possible without saying that they're abandoning ship as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, you know, you, you might imagine a modern, you know, a modern conservative cabinet, really. You know, well, the, the conservative... They're wonderfully supportive of Northumberland, but they're also trying to run away. Well, you know, the Conservative Party obviously thought Liz Truss was going to be a marvellous Prime Minister and their problems are all solved. But uh, <laughs> she was the Lady Jane Grey of... <laughs> Of our times, I guess. Yes, yeah. Although she wasn't, she wasn't executed. No, no, no. Well, you know, the, the, there are some benefits to being a politician. I think in the twenty first <laughs> rather than sixteen. Yeah, the, the stakes are pretty high. So, did you feel when you wrote your Penguin book on Edward that you got to know him better as a person, or, or is that pretty much impossible at this remove? I think getting a sense of Edward himself uh, actually, and trying yes. to get in to the head of a of a young king is really interesting. It's hard, but actually Edward wrote a lot. Yeah, so he wrote this this chronicle. I mean, is that yeah. sort of like a daily diary type thing? Yeah, kind of. And it changes, not surprisingly, over time. I think it was probably an exercise that his tutors encouraged him to do initially because most of the stuff, I and mean, when you look at the schoolroom curriculum that he covered, he basically done a kind of BA classics degree by the time he was 14. So, you know, right. standard, you know, very poor joke is, you know, no wonder the poor lad fell off the perch when he did. I mean, you know, he'd been absolutely <laughs> worked to the bone. So it's rhetoric, it's mathematics, it's fairly hardcore theology, it's mm. 
Latin, of course, you know, which he started learning when he was about five. It's Greek, it's Hebrew, and they had the poor boy giving kind of classical orations at court <laughs> weekly. So he does a lot of writing, but the, the, the chronicles in English, it's in the uh, cotton manuscripts in the British Library. Don't know whether he had sort of motor impairment skills, but his handwriting isn't beautiful. It never was. Right. He was taught by the leading classical scholars of their yeah. generation. Uh, and he was taught his handwriting by somebody called Roger Askin. And Askin had a beautiful Renaissance mm. Alec hand. And Edwards was always a bit kind of clunky, so it's not beautiful handwriting. But he was very skilled at kind of r recording what he saw. He's a bit impassive at moments, you know. There were I was going to say, is you know, does yeah. his character come through? Is there yeah. anything of his kind of inner life or thoughts, or is it very much? They chopped my uncle's head off this morning. Had sausages and eggs for breakfast. That's kind of it. <laughs> that kind of it. I mean, that that is almost really the kind of description of Somerset's execution. Right. So, Somerset's yeah. execution. so no. frustrating. I mean, no, no yeah. sort of cache of letters or anything like that. There are letters, but again, they're mainly kind of school exercises. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're kind of encouraged by his tutors, you know, their ways of practicing composition and handwriting. I mean, it's a wonderful source, but letters are great. He wrote these kind of policy papers, which are, are probably, mm. you know, kind of practice papers really for being involved as he got older in, in government. But apart from that, he can be a bit passive, really. One of the starting points, weirdly, for that little book I, I did for Penguin on Edward was a picture that lodged in my brain from my um, Ladybird book of, of Kings and Queens. <laughs> and it's a wonderful picture. It's by Frank Hampson, who drew Dan Dare for the Eagle. Uh, and they had wonderful illustrations in the... No, I, I love those Ladybird books. And I've been, I've been sort of recollecting them doing this series. Oh, they're brilliant. But this image is Somerset and Dudley, we assume, Having arguments. Just arguments. Somebody's <laughs> going for a sword. Eh? It's Dudley going for a sword. And Edward's just in the background. And he's completely blank. He's totally impassive. And that, for me, was a little kind of way into the book, you know, because he does actually seem like a bit of a blank, you know, what one earth's going. Yeah. Can, can we ever work it out? So we can, we did do the what if thing, you know, what if he hadn't died? It, it, did, he, did he show enough? Did we know enough about him to know if he would have been any good as a king? Any good? I don't know. Um, I think we do know enough about him to uh, get a fairly clear indication that he was a fairly hardcore Protestant. Yeah. So I think Protestant Reformation, Revolution, you know, the changes in the church, that would have gone on developing that Reformation mm. in force. So we wouldn't get the whole muddle of, you know, Mary then. Really. Yeah. Or, well, I mean, you know, as so often in this series you know you'd look at this small change you know had he lived yeah how different english history would have been from that point i think i think massively actually i think i think massively yeah. and we might as I said, we might still just be calling it english history rather than british history maybe the, the union with scotland would never have happened and yeah i think who knows where it would all have gone it's quite plausible you know relations with friends could have been very different because there are early steps and stages and negotiations for a, you know for a french marriage yeah um, for, for edward which is why there's this wonderful portrait of the king um in the louvre which is um 
which is beautiful. It's really, really striking. You kind of see Edward at about 14, 15 in all his garter finery. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that portrait is in France because it was yeah. Anglo-French um, marriage diplomacy. So, you know, relations with France could be very, very, very different. And, you know, where, where would that have taken France? Would that have put Edward's Protestant England on on collision course with French monarchy too? You know what what's that kind of relationship? So it's all complex. I think there's always with Edward for me a little bit of a hint of mini Henry VIII, right? Potentially uh, as well. There's that sort of. It's very hard to determine whether it's just youth and naivety or whether there is kind of a ruthlessness there. As well, some of those comments about my uncle had his head chopped off. I went off and did something else. <laughs> Sorry, but, about but that. and and coming from such yeah. a kind of, you know, what a childhood with all of those, your father's wives and the executions and, you know, the, the chances of him actually growing up to be well balanced, not at all. Paranoid. What? Uh, probably quite slim, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and someone who was, you know, trained from the beginning. So that kind of expectation that Edward was always going to be king uh, and that his heirs and successors would rule. There's that kind of certainty there uh, as, mm. as well. You know, his kingship was going to be absolute, you know, in the way that his fathers had been. Um, absolute. So in a way, it's kind of quite uncompromising. And I think he was pretty uncompromising. A short life and a very short reign, but a huge amount to talk about. And thank you so much for talking to me about it, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. Thank you. And good luck with finishing your book on Robert Cecil out in 2024. What's it going to be called? It's going to be called All His Spies, The Secret World of Robert Cecil. In some ways, it's a little bit like The Watchers, which was about kind of, you know, spies and secret stuff. So people seem to like that. Oh, they do. Penguin are they very do. happy for titles with spies in. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, could. thank you so much, Stephen. That's been really interesting. That's a pleasure. Well, thanks. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for inviting me on. That was Stephen Alford, author of, amongst others, The Penguin Monarch's book on Edward VI and The Watchers, A Secret History of the Reign of Elizabeth I, and London's Triumph, Merchant Adventurers and the Tudor City, which takes a look at the economics of this time. Please like and subscribe and all that malarkey, and do join me again for our next episode on Lady Jane Grey. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.